Welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast, interdisciplinary conversations about new works in the broad world of business research. I'm your host, Andrew Jennings. If you like what you hear today, please consider subscribing to the podcast or sharing with others who might like it too. And if you have ideas for future episodes, let me know. My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com, and I look forward to hearing from you. Our guest today is Amari Scott Simmons, Howard L. Olick, Professor of Business Law at Wake Forest University. We'll be discussing his recent article, Forgotten Gatekeepers, Executive Search Firms and Corporate Governance, which is forthcoming in the Wake Forest Law Review. I'll include a link to the article in today's show notes. Amari, welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast. Thanks. Great to be here, Andrew. Your article is about an actor in the corporate governance ecosystem that, as you note, doesn't get as much attention and is a little bit understudied, and that is the executive search firm, or ESF. As a matter of background, could you give us a little bit of the history of ESFs? How did they emerge? Uh, how have they developed as an industry over time? And what function do they fill within the intersection of HR and corporate governance? Well, first, before I even jump into that, I wanted to just you know, say that reason why we're talking about executive search firms, uh, and I'm going to call them ESFs for short for my comments today to make things go a little bit easier, but the idea here is that generally board reliance on experts or gatekeepers is a central feature of modern corporate governance. And so in the legal literature, we hear about lawyers, accounting firms, proxy advisory firms, and investment banks and even compensation consultants, but we don't hear anything about executive search firms. And I think this story, this gatekeeper story, uh, with respect to corporate governance, is incomplete without a consideration of the gatekeeping role that ESFs play. Uh, I think it's especially important in the current context, dealing with activist investors and other stakeholders as they demand certain types of reforms. Uh, I thought it's very interesting to look at ESFs and how they're developing a menu of solutions to some of these issues. And so I'll get into that a little bit more as we go along. But when you think about background and history and the function of ESFs, um, it goes back to the 1920s person credited with starting the first ESF was Thorndike Dealin in New York City. His business model constituted charging client companies a fixed rate, a retainer fee, let's say, for example, of $200. And he would also receive a 5% commission on the value of the hired candidate's first year salary. But I think I want to pick out World War II as being the watershed moment in the development of the industry. If you can imagine um, the war-thinned ranks of many corporations in the 1940s, creating a shortage of top executive talent. But post-war, you also had this massive industrialization, this boom, and the growth of the modern corporation at the same time. And so these factors contributed to rapid growth, but also greater demand for elite labor and specialized skills. I think it's also worth mentioning that the emergence of ESFs stem from what I would call a shifting paradigm and how we think about elite labor markets. And I say this in that how we view corporate managers and officers, the idea that it used to be that we'd think of them as being organizational people in the 1950s. You stick with the same company your entire career. But that view and vision gave away to one that was more interchangeable, that you actually had this concept of the migrant manager that actually developed and some observers would say that executive search firms actually contributed to this idea of the mobile manager. Along with these origins, though, really, most ESFs actually originated, or the larger ones today that we often talk about, 
Corn Fairy, Spencer Stewart, Hydric and Struggles, and others, their origins are linked to other types of large professional firms, such as management consultancies and accounting firms. And so, for example, when you think about Spencer Stewart and Hydric and Struggles, they emerged from the management consultancy Booz Allen and Hamilton. And Corn Ferry, which is the largest ESF, uh, emerged from the large accounting firm Pete Marwick Mitchell. And so I think these large, when I think about these other large accounting firms and management consultancies, they still had thriving search functions up until the 1970s. And the reason they left or spun off this type of business stemmed from something that's going to be relevant to what we're going to talk about a little bit later in the sense of conflicts that arose and some degree of regulation surrounding those conflicts. And so I'll just give an example. Let's say you're a management consulting company. A conflict can arise where you're actually getting paid twice. And think about it this way. On one level, you can recommend that there need to be some restructuring or changes in personnel. And so you collect for that particular, I guess, job. And then subsequently, you can use your executive search firm function to actually recommend the actual personnel and so, or produce a candidate. So you can see in that situation where you can have the management consultancy firm that's diversified collecting twice, and you can think about some of the conflicts that might arise. So that gives a little bit of a background as to where we're at today. I will say that executive search firms today, particularly the larger ones where I'm focusing on, the ones that do the C-level searches and the ones that perform your board searches, there's a small grouping of those, and they're highly diversified and global, but they're not limited merely to what we'd normally think of talent acquisition. And I think one of the more interesting things about ESFs is how they themselves are diversifying and getting into a range of other professional services that address particular governance needs where they are actually competing with the very same professional firms that they spun off of previously. That's a, an interesting history of Circle where a lot of these firms emerged as spinoffs due to conflicts with, within larger firms. And now as they seek to diversify, they are adding on some of those extra services that uh, maybe they were shut off as at, at one point. Coming back to the point about gatekeepers, which was really the, the central theme of, of this article, I wondered why a company would want to engage an ESF rather than use its internal HR resources or the networks of its existing executives or directors to identify new uh, either director talent or executive talent. It seems like that might be far less costly in terms of recruiting folks and, and also maybe might keep it a little bit more in-house given how sensitive these roles are. No, great, great question. Uh, why, why outsource? You know, ultimately, companies have to make that make versus buy decision, um, whether to procure the service on the spot market or provide it themselves. I will say this, and you're correct in suggesting it doesn't seem to be about cost, because if you do it internally, it just seems that you can probably do it cheaper. Also, if you get an internal candidate, the likelihood there is that the internal candidate is actually going to be cheaper because um, you don't have to pretty much buy them out of their current job, so to speak. And so why outsource? I would say it deals with corporate complexity and that the stakes behind CEO and director hires are extremely high. Uh, think about it this way. A poor hire can lead to a share price decline, scandal, reputational damage, or even top employee defections. So when engaged in hiring, I think directors want stakeholders to perceive them as diligent, deliberative, and also procedurally fair. 
And so also we need to think about with respect to the high-profile hires, uh, using ESS today is perceived as the best practice. And you said, why wouldn't they rely on their own internal contacts alone? Well, still directors and others are, their feedback is, is crucial. But having said that, ESS can offer something that perhaps internal HR departments cannot in the sense of that they have these global networks for executive talent that are less homogenous. One claim is that they get beyond the old boys network, so to speak, and have greater capacity and resources available to them. Also, keeping with the idea about perception, outsourcing to an ESS signals legitimacy to hiring companies and candidates. Now, another thing you mentioned that I think is more of an operational thing or, or maybe just how it might play out if you think about it, corporate HR departments, they do engage in tons of hiring, particularly for mid-levels. We also see market share there even going up. Uh, more companies are bringing that in-house. When we think about positions paying less than $250,000, but more than $100,000, more of that is being brought you know, in-house. But for the types of hires we're talking about, these are still something that go to ESFs. And I would say why that might be the case. I think HR departments might be reluctant uh, to perform CEO and board searches uh, due to the time or the expertise and the resources needed. But I also think it's something a little bit awkward. If you think about an HR director hiring the, the CEO or a board member, it's awkward because you have an HR director doing the hiring and they're hiring their own boss. And so there's always the potential or the appearance that the incentives may not align with what the broader institutions happen to be. How are EFSs regulated in the market today? And how does their role, particularly at the board and senior executive level, interact with the fiduciary duties of the board and exercising diligence over who it hires? You'd mentioned diligence a moment ago, but I wonder if you could maybe explore that a little bit more. Oh, no, great. Great. I will. And um, I may give a, a slightly longer answer uh, just to make sure I'm covering the basis. But interestingly enough, generally, uh, corporate cases, SEC regulations, uh, they specifically sometimes even address the work and potential conflicts of a range of gatekeepers, auditors, bankers, lawyers, even compensation consultants. But ESFs haven't had the same degree or have not been given the same degree of attention, yet some of the conflicts that we've been alluding to that give rise to these regulations still apply in their particular context. But so what I'd like to do is just give a brief overview of sort of corporate law, state corporate law, what that has to say about ESFs and their gatekeeping. Similarly, I'll also mention a couple things about federal securities laws as well. And so when you think about it, I'll start with Delaware, you think about the statutory scheme. And state corporation law permits the board to create and rely on committees. And I want to highlight um, Section 141E of the Delaware General Corporation Law that provides that directors can rely on the reports of experts. This, I would argue, um, not everybody would, that this is an incredibly important provision. And it says a lot about modern corporate governance to the extent that it's been outsourced. Um, there, there are a lot of other scholars that touch upon this. Uh, one that comes to mind is Stephen Bainbridge, who talks about how a lot of modern corporate governance has been simply outsourced to different types of gatekeepers and other professional uh, firms. Interesting enough, however, relying on this advice, uh, directors and officers can fulfill uh, the duty of care. Relying on expert advice, let's say an ESF, can serve as evidence of good faith and fair dealing. 
And generally, for legal and practical purposes, as long as directors rely in good faith on experts, they're going to be unlikely to face legal liability or be second-guessed, and that should come as no surprise. Uh, But ultimately, we can't forget that the corporation is managed by and under the direction of the board of directors. And so, pursuant to 141E, the expert's role is actually to assist the board's decision-making, but it doesn't supplant it. And and saying that, though, is that the directors don't need to follow ESF recommendations or the recommendations of other experts to the letter. They still have to exercise their own judgment, even if they're frequently consulting and relying on a range of third-party guidance and gatekeepers. But 141E is a very important provision, once again, with respect to modern corporate governance, because as a functional matter and in practice, can think about countless, hundreds of corporate decisions are outsourced to third parties, lawyers, bankers, accountants, consultants, proxy advisory firms, and of course, ESFs. Also, that's the statutory scheme. But when you think about cases, to my knowledge, there are no Delaware cases that have alleged that directors have actually breached their fiduciary duties through their selection of or even relying on an executive search firm when hiring a CEO or appointing a director. When you think about the iconic case in Ray Disney involving Disney's hiring of Michael Ovitz and specifically uh, Michael Eisner, his friend hiring his friend Michael Ovitz to come to Disney, that case did not involve an executive search firm. There was a compensation consultant firm involved, but ESF was not used. And you can think about how that case might have been differently or perceived differently if an ESF had been engaged and Eisner's level of engagement and he had not steered the process himself to that degree. But I want to highlight here, once again, the business judgment rule generally. It protects employment decisions ranging from hiring, firing, compensation, relying on outside advisors like ESFs, and it also includes things, and you think about in the current context of Me Too and Time's Up, it even covers settling sexual harassment lawsuits. You know, with respect to settlement, particularly, directors are afforded the presumption of having acted in good faith, even if they even have awareness of lawsuits in hiring, because just because there's a resulting settlement does not establish that they knew the particular suits were meritorious or that the officer that was involved in them engaged in um, the conduct that was alleged. And so for all intents and purposes, the business judgment rule protects a lot of hiring decisions. And then even when we think about corporate waste, corporate waste claims that might be related to some settlement that was subsequently reached, they're likely to fail, you know, given that standard of, of liability. So in general, Delaware statutory scheme and its jurisprudence provide significant protections in hiring decisions. Having said that, the SEC approach, uh, there's been a lot more focus generally on gatekeepers. And I want to highlight a little bit, the board nomination process has evolved significantly from what it was in the past of simply rubber stamping CEO recommended candidates. Uh, We think about the New York Stock Exchange and the NASDAQ require listed companies to have an audit compensation committee, but also a nominating governance committee composed solely of independent directors. In 2003, the SEC adopted disclosure rules that were related to the director nomination process, and over time, they've become more specific. As a general matter, uh, following Sarbanes-Oxley and and Dodd-Frank, the regulatory emphasis on companies using outside advisors and gatekeepers, especially audit firms and compensation consultants, has increased. And as I said before, the SEC requires disclosures of the nomination process, illustrating the importance. Also, the, the New York Stock Exchange's listing standards grant the nominating committee the sole authority to retain and terminate executive search firms. 
Additionally, institutional investors have expressed concern about the ability of outside advisors to render independent judgment, often raising the concern of conflicts and how conflicts might constrain the judgment. And this also led to a focus actually on compensation consultants. I'll just use them as an example because they're close to speaking about the topic of executive search firms. Um, In response to the concern about compensation consultants, the SEC amended its regulations to require greater disclosure of conflicts as they pertain to compensation consultants. And the Dodd-Frank Act requires compensation committees to consider conflicts of interest and independence-related factors when they're actually procuring these types of services. Interestingly enough, uh, ESFs raise similar questions about conflicts. You can even argue that ESFs are a bigger player. Uh, I would argue that they're a bigger player uh, than compensation consultants, and especially as they expand the range of service offerings to these companies, yet they generate less attention. So there is indeed a valid question of whether or not investors would respond to more information regarding ESFs and executive searches, but the other related question is more regulation needed or not. So I'd like to maybe take that question of conflicts a little bit. And you mentioned that the process for board appointments has evolved over the years. Could you maybe walk us through the anatomy of a search for a senior executive or for a director? How does the ESF facilitate that process of bringing a match together in that market? And where might some conflicts arise in that process between the ESF and the firm, between the firm and the candidate, or between the the candidate and the ESF? Okay, great. And I will kind of do that question in a couple of ways. I'll start out talking about kind of the general relationship between those three parties, you know, the hiring company, the ESF, and the candidate. And then I'll give um, a little bit more information about the anatomy of your CEO search or your director search. I'll start out by saying that let's, from the outset, um, there's an understanding that ESFs represent and are paid by the client corporation. Having said that, the hiring company, the candidate, and the ESF are part of a three-party exchange. I would characterize ESFs as functioning as facilitators and mediators. wouldn't call them exactly a, a, a broker of sorts, but they're third-party intermediation in this particular context. They're facilitating the transaction between the hiring company and the candidate. And I would say in this role, a easy way to describe it is that the ESF is bridging gaps between two unconnected parties, managing a process and allowing the flow of activity and information between them. And so in this way, in the most positive sense, employing an ESF in this way generates benefits by strengthening and cultivating a unity between the hiring corporation and the candidate. And this way, we can argue that they can lower the transaction costs for both of the parties, because there's a lot of reasons why parties may not wish to even enter into this particular transaction because of the risk to both. On one end, you have the hiring company. They may not want to have a failed search and have that impact their reputation. On the other side of it, usually when you're going after candidates, you're going after someone who's in a job and has done well in that. And so they are very concerned about a a range of things, including confidentiality. And because of information or leaks that could get out, could cause irreversible damage to them in terms of their career. So because of a lot of these different risks, I could characterize these risk things such as the non-robust labor market. It's not as dynamic as one would might think. Smaller number of buyers and sellers, candidates, as well 
as hiring companies. Some of those risks I mentioned to, to the, the hiring company as well as the candidate in terms of reputation. And then there are also just general institutional gaps that are there. It's hard for the parties to really feel themselves out if they're dealing with one another. And by having this third party, what they can actually do is ascertain the actual intentions of the parties. And I'll give an example. If, let's say, the hiring company already has a internal candidate who's really the person they want, an external candidate may want to participate if there's a strong internal candidate and it's not a real open search. Similarly, on the other end, if I'm a hiring company, I don't want to try to engage or interview or waste my time with a candidate who is simply trying to use this particular process as a way to leverage against third parties and advantages. So because of that, that's why an ESF can be very helpful in sorting out some of these problems and some of these uh, conflicts. Having said all that, too, ESF's participation and just to be balanced has also been critiqued in the sense that it can potentially create unnecessary transaction costs because of their intermediation and may be opportunistic and seek out their own self-interest. So example here might be, let's say there is an internal candidate who's probably the best prospect, but you have a firm that recommends um, external an external search, an extensive external search, and external candidates. When you think about it, through the external search and external candidates, the search firm arguably is going to get more money in terms of the consultant's fee than they would get from the person who's internal. So there are indeed conflicts or transaction costs that created either way. Having said that, I want to give you now a little bit of the anatomy of a senior executive search. I'll just start out assuming it's a CEO. One of two things has to happen before a company even contacts an ESF. The CEO has to unexpectedly announce they are resigning or resign. Or the second thing is that the board decides that the CEO has to be replaced, needs to be fired, and determines that there's no internal candidate that's suitable to replace them, or that there may be an internal candidate, but they still believe that that candidate should be benchmarked against a diverse slate of outside candidates. In this context, there's a lot of urgency surrounding the hiring of a CEO because it has implications far and wide from stock price, market reactions, and a lot of observers. But the common steps are, are as follows. Some of the initial steps include, one, a, a meeting with the client analyzing the client's needs and depth, analyzing the market, and working closely with significant help from the client. And that is here the directors creating specifications or prospectus on what ideal attributes the candidate experiences and qualifications the candidate should have. Equipped with that, you need to develop a search strategy. How do you go about strategizing and carrying this out? And then there's generating a list of names and identifying candidates. Doing this, and let's say you identify an initial list of 15 to 20 candidates, how do you get this? Well, you rely heavily on your directors who maybe in the industry have a knowledge of who operates in that industry and have heard by reputation. Uh, I just say this because ESFs don't start from scratch. Indeed, they can bring additional candidates and they will bring additional candidates to the table, but I do still want to talk about there is actual a lot of director engagement with identifying this pool of candidates still. The next thing will involve approaching the candidates, qualifying them and interviewing them, and then to create a short list. And let's say through basic referencing, uh, what ends up happening, you now have a short list that went from 15 to 20 to three to four people now. And then eventually, after referencing, you 
the idea of making the offer and negotiating, and then onboarding and even maybe even some further negotiations. So that's the way it would generally work for a CEO. Board searches are somewhat similar. Ideally, at the outset of a, a board search, you would have uh, some type of consulting engagement where there should be some discussion, assessment, and a creation of an overall board composition strategy. But I think some of those same steps I mentioned in the CEO context could indeed apply in the board context as well. There's no reason to revisit them. What open questions or maybe points do you see for ECFs and their role uh, within the corporate governance ecosystem and what law says or, or doesn't say or should say about that role? Yes. Uh, one of the things uh, why I think this paper is, is important, uh, once again, I, I went back to the idea that board reliance on experts or gatekeepers is a central feature of modern corporate governance. In essence, a lot of corporate governance is being outsourced to third parties and professional service firms. ESFs are important because I, in looking at them, over time, and relying on my industry sources, I realized that they touch a lot of the major debates that we're talking about in modern corporate governance. So, for example, board composition. We're finding out that executive search firms are playing a greater role with respect to finding independent directors. Usually, nominations for independent directors come from three places, the CEO, the nominating or governance committee, and the executive search firms. So that's becoming more prevalent. As there's a greater focus on diversity and inclusion, who can play the role? Who can help solve that? And when I say diversity, it's broad. It's broad. It can include race, ethnicity, but also diversity of expertise and a range of other things as well. That's where executive search firms are also crucial, crucial in the boardroom to board composition. Another thing is executive pay. Uh, For all the discussion about executive pay, and the focus on compensation of consultants, they get into the game actually a bit later. If we think about public companies, the salaries are already known. Um, they're disclosed. And executive search firms actually have to know a lot about salary because effectively, when they are contacting candidates who are in existing jobs, they have to know that there is the prospect that they may have to buy that person out of their particular job. So executive search firms are indeed aware of this. And there's another reason why they're aware of this is because how do they get paid? Um, Generally, uh, when we're thinking about the retained executive search for CEOs, um, they historically had been paid a percentage, uh, what I would say a significant percentage, let's say 30 to 40% of the first year's total compensation. If you think about that with respect to certain industries, we're talking about millions of dollars. Uh, per engagement. Having said that, there has been some movement away from that and and some flexibility, but I just wanted to highlight that that because I think it's important. In addition to that, just simply having the board, the concept of board evaluation, uh, looking at the board, its composition over time, we're finding executive search firms are moving beyond just simply talent acquisition and playing a role in ongoing governance-related matters. One of the things that's becoming more and more um, a focus, we talk a lot about sustainability um, in an environmental sense, but also we have to think about, is the company itself sustainable? Is this company going to last? Is it succession planning is something that's extremely important. There has been some critique about executive search firms in the sense that they're trying to go after these lucrative fees. 
But from my sources, I get the sense that that's not necessarily a fair assessment because a lot of your top executive search firms are doing a lot on succession planning, trying to make sure that companies are actually creating their own internal stable of talent so that they can take over. In fact, I've been told that if you look at companies that consistently go outside for a CEO, that could signal certain types of organizational failure. I think it's more robust in terms of the services that these firms are providing, but also they're trying to provide services that are on a more continuous basis. Um, These one-offs are not necessarily where they're going to end up making most of their, they're going to make a lot of their money, but we're finding that these other segments that they're getting into with respect to board management services is where a lot of gains are being made. So backing up and just bringing it all all center, I think it also raises an interesting thing in that executive search firms are finding themselves not being as much distinguishable from management consultancies, law firms, and all these other professional service firms that are sort of converging and converging and going after these lucrative engagements to provide governance-related services to our you know, nation's top companies. And so I think this is an interesting dynamic, and it goes back to the future for where we started about, and it raises the question, uh, what type of regulation may be needed in these spaces? Are there firewalls that need to be erected, for example, to deal with some of the conflicts that might arise? Irrespective of all that, I want to say that executive search firms and their contribution to modern corporate governance merits greater examination, not only for academics, policymakers, but also other types of corporate observers. Amari, what key takeaways would you like our listeners to have from this paper and and from this conversation? Well, one is that the the gatekeeper debate is still alive and well. A large part of modern corporate governance is performed by gatekeepers, and ESFs are part of that very important story. ESFs provide a range of solutions to a lot of corporate governance problems that we often talk about. And ESFs are finding themselves now competing with other types of professional service firms um, for these lucrative governance-related services. Interesting enough, as I've discussed, ESFs, are their work is often beyond the reach of law. They're often private solutions to governance problems. Having said that, the effectiveness of these private solutions that ESFs have devised to address these governance concerns merit further exploration by scholars, client corporations, as well as policymakers. Our guest today has been Amari Scott-Simmons, Howard L. Olick Professor of Business Law at Wake Forest University. We've discussed his recent article, Forgotten Gatekeepers, Executive Search Firms, and Corporate Governance, which is forthcoming in the Wake Forest Law Review. I'll include a link to the article in the show notes for today's episode. Amari, thank you for joining the Business Scholarship Podcast. Thank you. It's been my pleasure. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Business Scholarship Podcast. If you like what you heard, please consider subscribing to the podcast or leaving a rating on your favorite podcast app, or let other people know about it too. If you have suggestions for future episodes, please let me know. My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com, and I look forward to hearing from you. Until the next time, I'm your host, Andrew Jennings. Andrew Jennings.